0: Every time we used to sail through Sydney Harbour or when you see Rotto. it's great. It is great to be back home. I mean, I think we're really privileged to live in Australia.
1: They said that they check, I'll see you later. I keep responding back and said, no, I'm not coming back here later today. I might come back here tomorrow, but I won't see you later. Welcome back to the People of Perth podcast, a
2: series all about the people who live in the world's most isolated city. Nicknamed sand gropers, West Australians really like to travel, whether it's around our own scorched country or exploring the far reaches of the globe. It also helps that Perth is kind of a travel hub with direct flights through to most of Asia, Africa and Europe. You can even take a flight over Antarctica from here. This episode is all about West Australians and Perthlings adventures all over the world and why, for many of us, there's still no place like home. I'm Carmen Braidwood, and these are the people of Perth.
0: So I got out of the Navy in 2004. I guess it was then that the decision was to be made, do I move somewhere else or do I stay here?
2: Woodhams has lived a life on the road, not necessarily in caravans or trucks, but he's still seen as much of our country as he can due to a lot of relocating. His childhood was spent the same way many military kids do, moving from one posting to the next whenever work required it. And you'd think that kind of lifestyle would make someone want to settle down in the one spot the moment they can. But for Paul, the constant travelling didn't dampen his desire to see the world one bit.
0: Well, I grew up all around Australia because my father was in the Navy and then once I turned 17 and a half I followed in his footsteps, joined the Navy myself into submarines as an acoustic analyst and that took me sort of all around the world and particularly a lot in Southeast Asia where I developed my um, passion for spicy food and chilli and curries and everything like that. So. Yeah, that's where it all started.
2: Was it the Navy that brought you to Perth, Paul?
0: Yeah, it was. I first came in the Navy uh, in 1994. So I spent, I think it was about five years here while I was posted to one of the submarines that was stationed here and then went to Adelaide from here to bring one of the Collins class submarines out of build down in Adelaide. Shifted back to Perth when that home ported here in 2000 and been here ever since.
2: So was it tough?
0: Um, Yeah, it was. A lot tougher than now. I mean, back then, you know, all the bullying um, issues and stuff that, that are out there now. And back then when you joined the services, you were tested in recruit school and the testing was both physical and mentally.
2: And you're not talking about formalised testing here, are you? I get the the drift. You mean you were pushed to your Yeah,
0: absolutely. Pushed out of your bed at four o'clock in the morning to run around the parade ground with a rifle above your head doing laps of what they call the bullring, And, uh, you know, running until you basically fell over and threw up and things like that. So, yeah, it was tough in those days. And if you passed recruit school, you did well.
2: What do you think you learned about life in the Navy?
0: Exactly what's out there as far as the world goes. I had the opportunity of seeing a lot of the world very young. In my day, the submarine service, when you did your basic training, it was over in the UK. Spent three months in the UK when I was, uh, when I was 18 And that was over there doing the submarine escape tank and what they called your part one, which was your basic submarine training, how a submarine works. And then came back and was based at HMAS Platypus in Neutral Bay in Sydney, lovely part of the world. Went from there and deployed all over the world from there in the Oberon class submarines. So would
2: you say that you saw a lot of the world and you had a lot to compare, say, the place you wanted to live for the rest of your life with?
0: Yeah, definitely. The Navy took me everywhere. The good thing about being on submarines is when you do pull into a port, you're put into a hotel, a nice five-star hotel to stay in and given this wad of cash on top of your wage to have a good time with. And uh, it was supposed to feed you as well. But a lot of people um, you know, just used to live on the bare minimum and um, spent the rest doing other things. (laughs) Yeah, certainly saw a lot of the world for work, which was really good. I think it grounded me a lot because when I'd get home, and you hear the cliche all the time, it's always great to come home. Well, every time we used to sail through Sydney Harbour, through those heads, or when you could see Rotto in the distance as you're coming home, it's great. It is great to be back home. I mean, I think we're really, really privileged to live in Australia, not only during COVID times. It's really handy that we're an island for that. When you see what happens around the world and, and what other parts of the world, the way they live and the conditions they have, we've got a lot to be thankful for.
2: Anyone who's ever moved city or country and had to rebuild their social groups from scratch can understand what a daunting task that can seem to be. Just getting out and finding people you share interests with can sometimes be a challenge and that goes double if you're still learning the new language. Moving from a hectic life in South Africa's fashion industry, Lizelle Hartley decided to relocate to Perth with her husband when he received a job opportunity. The plan was to spend more time with her daughters and put being a mum first instead of her career for a while. But while learning another language is one thing, it turns out adapting to local slang is entirely another.
1: There is obviously a lot of Aussie words that we need to get used to. Example: When we arrive, and they said that they check out every time for me. See you later. I keep responding back and said, "No, I'm not coming back here later today. I might come back here tomorrow, but I won't see you later." So that was probably the biggest challenge for me. And it became a household joke because Michael (laughs) will say to me, see you later. I said, you don't, you're not going to say it. You're not going to joke, do that joke. And now I'm part of it. Now I've got a whole little bit of Aussie in me and I use it myself. I love that story. You know, you and I have known each other for more than a year now. And I've never asked you, how did you come to arrive in Perth? Yes, I had a very full on life in South Africa. And it didn't always make sense for friends and colleagues that that was the time of my life i pack up and go to another country Mm. because that stage of my life I was involved in so many things. I had a fashion house, I had a modelling school. So it was a very busy life with lots of popularity Mm. around that. And I think on the stage when I did make the decision to come here, I didn't really know what it will be that nobody know you. Mm. I didn't know what it will be that I walk down when the postman come down so I can talk to somebody so it's one person that I know, yeah, and I can have a conversation with. For me, my life was more trying not to go to the mall because everybody stop and talk to you. And we had a local newspaper and I know was every week in the newspaper. I had once time somebody visit me and said, I know you. And I said, do you? He said, yes, I see you every time. You visit me every time in my house. I said, how? He said, you're every week in the newspaper and the newspaper is every week in my house. So I know you by that. So it was definitely a different life and making a decision to give that all up and come to a country where you don't know anyone, you have not even been before. And I have never had interest in Australia, so I didn't even read something about Australia. So the day when Michael said to me, I've got an opportunity to come to Australia, I had no idea what this mean. Wow. And because I had such a busy life, it was a great opportunity to be that perfect mum at home growing with my goals because my lifestyle was too busy. I had never been without a PA and at least six, eight workers around me. Wow. So I never had to do anything than delegate.
2: Yeah.
1: And it was socially busy. Yeah. So for me, it was kind of... I'm going to take a break. I'm going to retire okay. early. That was your idealised version of what you are heading into? That was. And very soon after we arrived, I knew I couldn't sit still. So the minute Hazel go to her first school, I become the PMF leader and change the bathrooms and redo the garden of the school. So <laughs> I think when you're a busy person, it's a little bit in your blood and it didn't last very long. Your move to Perth came
2: when your girls were still very small. Mm. All that time you were speaking Afrikaans back at home. Yes. So when did you learn English?
1: Well, the one thing is I married an English man. That was probably my plus point because he stole my backup when it came to the English language. But when... I came to Perth, I was very, very Afrikaans. Mm. I must say that Michael had quicker learn Afrikaans oh, to yeah. impress me when Hitting. we start dating oh. than I was learning the English. And where I grew up and coming back to my mum, my mum could not even speak English because she didn't have the need to speak English. There was nobody English to talk to. Mm. So we grew up where it's very, very Afrikaans, in the Klein Karoo. Um Back in South Africa, it's they even got a festival around the language and the Klein Karoo festival. The Afrikaans is very, very strong. So you quickly learn when you realize that everyone around you is English. I was making a lot of mistakes and up to today, I still make a lot of mistakes. But one thing that I had to realize is I'm not going to let it hold me back. I went to a few public speaking courses and so I've got a very strong accent, so can we do something about it? And the gentleman, Peter, i done the course with say, that's your biggest accent. Mm. I'm not going to let you change it. Go out there and just talk. And I think that was the best thing I got from that course is that somebody just say, you don't need to learn anything. Just go out there and talk. You will learn as it go. And it's part of who you are. And that is what I had to hold onto. that this is me. This is me with the accent and me with the unperfect English.
2: Last episode, you heard from Debbie Stevenson about her journey to Australia from the UK as a £10 POM. Now, you'd think that experience might have made her less likely to want to move countries ever again to start over. But when Debbie married, her husband's work took them all over the world. He even managed to convince her to get back on a boat. Moved to
3: Houston first in 98. So the kids were um, four and six mm-hmm. and we were there for four years. So the southern states, the United States in, of America. In Houston, yeah. It was really like as we imagined it was going to be. Really? Yeah. yeah. What was Every, life like there? Where did you live? Who were um, your friends? We lived in actually a beautiful little suburb called Sugarland. Sugarland? <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Okay. And it was Really nice. What was your husband's work over there? In the oil and gas industry, the same as he's doing now. Yeah. So you get to Houston, you, get, you set up your own house and everything, and then you yeah, just start just going set to up, work. set yourself up, and just start from scratch. You know, just start a life. It was good though because having the children, you're forced to start life straight away. You're immersed, you're in. you in, you straight at school, make friends straight away. I started volunteering in the school. Did you? And Did you go to church? I think religion's no, pretty no, popular there. No, we didn't. There. It no? is really popular, but we didn't, um, no. no. And that was okay? Did
2: you find anyone ever stopped you and said, oh, we, we don't were, see you at church? No, or?
3: no, we were fine. Um, most of our friends didn't go to church either. Oh, that's good, <laughs> So yeah. we probably attracted a certain kind of person, I'm not sure. <laughs> what about guns? I remember being in Oklahoma yeah. once and someone was stunned that I didn't like the idea. Yes. he had a gun on him. Yeah, well, I remember yeah. we went into Walmart or Kmart, one of those shops. We'd only been there a little while and someone said about buying a gun and we were horrified and we didn't buy guns the whole time we were there. Yeah, wow. Like, no, you just, didn't need it. It just seemed wrong.
2: Yeah. How long were you in Houston? Um,
3: Four years and then we went straight to Angola in Africa. Wow. So what's it
2: like when you get that call? You're sitting in Houston. You're already away from the place you know as home. Yes. Yeah, You're still quite young. Yeah. sounds good. Yeah. your kids are young. Yeah, the kids are still young. And yeah. someone says, let's go
3: to and, Angola. Yes, Angola, West you Africa. have to check where it is? <laughs> well, we'd actually had like an orientation visit. Um, my husband and I had been to have a look for a week to see if we could actually like manage the assignment. And it's like, yeah, Yeah. we can do this. So it was actually really easy transitioning there, much easier than America. Okay. What what way? We got there and because there is an expat community, everyone was expecting us. So we walked into the house and there was like casseroles and dessert and salad for that night and flowers and then people were phoning and dropping in. It was just like. It was amazing.
2: Yeah, they were expecting you. They
3: knew we were coming and it was just a really easy
2: transition. So tell me about life in Angola. I mean, it probably had privileges because you were expat people. Yeah, yeah. Um, What sort of society is it like that? Uh, What would the everyday people of Angola have been like in their lifestyle? Well, they've got
3: a totally different lifestyle to us and most of them are quite poor mm-hmm. and a lot of them don't have education available to them and they still have things like polio and malaria.
2: Wow. And would people have worked in the oil and gas industry that your husband was there to work in? They did have some
3: people, there were some locals. They were actually going to sort of like help train those people. But a lot of people didn't have jobs like that. Would you have had staff in your home? We did. We had to um, have a housekeeper. We had to have a gardener. We had a driver and three security guards, like on a 24-hour rotation. Was that a big change to your life in Houston? Oh, yeah, totally. Because in Houston we were just like regular people, just going about our own life. And then all of a sudden we've come to this place and we're just like really sort of like sheltered and managed We couldn't go too far out of the boundaries, you know, because of security. Um, When the kids went to school, they had to go on a big bus and a parent had to ride on the bus with them. It was about an hour to an hour and a half drive to the school and there was an armed car leading the way and then another car at the back.
2: So crime was obviously an issue in that area?
3: Crime was sort of more crime of opportunity. Mm. They'd just finished a civil war. They'd had war for 25 years. If you didn't wear jewellery and that sort of thing, you'd be good.
2: How long did you end up staying in Angola? We were there four years. And while you were there, what did you do?
3: Because I'd worked in the school in Houston, ladies had heard about this and they got me to go to an orphanage and at first I was really reluctant and so this girl said, just come with me, we'll do a craft with the kids, so... The two of us turn up one day expecting about 30 or 40 kids. Well, there's was about 100 kids aged from like about two years old up to 18 years old. Oh, my gosh, how overwhelming. And we stayed for hours and made sure everyone got to do the craft. Did you have and any
2: Portuguese by then? Were you speaking the sing- language? Single
3: words, yep. just single words. And everyone did the craft. They were so thrilled, their little faces, and we said, we've got to come back we're gonna come back next Monday. Wow. But we're gonna get some more people. <laughs>
2: yeah. So you recruited other we, recruited, expat wives. we
3: ended up creating like this big army of people and that program's actually still going today. We started that in all oh, two thousand and two and it's still going today and it's just gotten bigger and bigger.
2: Well, in your form, you told me about a really special moment that actually brought the entire community together. And when I read about it, I remember thinking, that's what Perthling is about to me. It's about doing something that we can all connect over. Yes. So please tell me what happened. We decided
3: we'd do a movie night. So we got a king size bed sheet. We had a projector. I went out and found a Portuguese version of Finding Nemo and... Told all the you know orphanage to be ready, and, you know, like we'd get there at a certain time. So we got there and set it all up, and by the time we started, there were just more and more people coming, and it had gone around the whole village. Wow. So the whole courtyard was full of children, adults, old oh, people. How everyone. many people do you think were there? Oh, hundreds. Yeah, like easily like a couple of hundred people, maybe yeah. three hundred. Um, they were sitting on like roofs of houses. They were sitting on car roofs, like just so they could get like a vantage point to see this film and, oh, it was amazing. Like, the children, their mouths were just open in awe, just watching this film in their own language on a big screen and the old people, they had tears rolling down their faces. Like, honestly, it was just... And to be able to give someone that sort of experience...
2: In 2002 in Angola, people who had never really even seen
3: No, film. never never seen television Tellies. or been to the cinema or anything like that. And we'd sort of given them something that was so simple for us. Like it took no effort really. You know, it was just like incredible. And the program continues to this yeah, day? Yeah, the program still continues. In the okay. orphanage is Mama Mishima in Luanda. Yep. It's just volunteering on different days. I think they went on to teach, like do a sewing class. So they taught the children children. children how to sew so that they could actually sell
2: things. Mm -hmm. What are the social issues that lead to children being orphaned in Angola? Why would they find themselves there? Well, because
3: they'd had the civil war for 25 years, a lot of families just got separated. So it wasn't only people sort of like dying in the war. There was that sort of like separation thing where people just found that they just Lost, they didn't know who they were. Do you have any contact within the children that you worked with? No, they? no, Mama Mishima actually do have a Facebook page that I like, yeah. So I still see photos coming up of the children doing their arts and crafts and things like that. Wow. So it's just so good to see. And Hub still works? Yeah, he does. I'd love to retire on a cruise ship. That's my ultimate dream. Is that the goal, is it? Back on a ship? Be <laughs> <Are you> sure? <laughs> well, after the £10 POM experience, I thought, nope, never on a ship for me. And I was always sick when I went to Rottnest. But for our 10th anniversary, yeah? my husband got a cruise to the Caribbean. Yeah, how did that go? And it was awesome. And I was addicted. So I have just... Cruised at every opportunity since. (laughs) Where have we cruised to? Oh, everywhere. We've been down to Antarctica. Was that good? That was amazing. We went in the Amazon River, like for seven days, right up the Amazon River. Was the air really fresher there? You
2: know, everyone says it's the the lung of the
3: earth because of the trees. It was actually really stinking humid. It was awful. Wow. So. <laughs> that was fascinating. That, that cruise was hilarious actually. It was round trip from Fort Lauderdale. So we flew over from Perth. You can imagine like it took ages to get there mm. and we had five full suitcases. Mm. So because we were going for 68 nights. Oh, that's a long and time. And it's a long yeah. time and you need a lot of outfits. We're doing hot <laughs> weather for Amazon. We're doing freezing weather for Antarctica. You've got four more nights. You've got everything. So we ended up with five cases wow. and had to kind of strap them all together in a row. And my husband just pulled along this row of cases <laughs> and like, everyone was staring at us at every airport. Your husband <laughs> is a saint. I'm going to give he him is. that. Because
2: um, <laughs> when my hubby and I didn't overseas trip, we restricted our Ourselves to hand luggage only oh, we no. went all the way to London um, stopped in the Middle East on the way and yeah it was all hand luggage oh I could
3: never do it I really <laughs> couldn't even like to go in a hotel in Perth for one night I take a big suitcase i love it so honestly no
2: <laughs> Debbie slightly high maintenance but very well traveled and does great things for kids Next time on the People of Perth podcast, creativity is in the spotlight, from music to performances and even the digital arts. Sharon Krasnovsky shares the risky nature of her chosen performing art. How badly injured were you? bad (laughs) yeah my left hip is still hurting like right now. singer songwriter Ari Davis shares some life lessons from the music industry. You never go over the bar tab or you know (laughs) like oh I brought nine friends tonight and they just want a midi each. And Chris Lundstrom reveals how he became a mainstay of one of the U.S.'s most popular conventions.
0: The amount of signatures that I've got of thank you for making my first convention amazing
2: this podcast series is made possible thanks to interviews with the members of the Perthling Facebook group. If you'd like to be part of future Perthling projects, head to the link in this episode's description and join on in. The People of Perth podcast is produced by Bad Bard Productions and presented by me, Carmen Braidwood. We hope you'll join us next time for more stories from the world's most isolated city. Thanks for listening.